Welcome to the ProPolitics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. Today, my guest is Becky Donatelli. Becky's worked closely with the giants of Republican politics, Ronald Reagan, Jim Baker, John McCain. Becky is now one of the heaviest hitters in Republican politics and the founder and CEO of Campaign Solutions, which has been innovating in the digital space for 20 years and made history by raising the first ever online donation in politics in 1998. Her client list includes names like McCain, Bush, Rubio, Lindsey Graham, among many, many others. She's been utilized by Harvard, USC, George Mason to impart her insights and experiences to the rising generation of budding political operatives. And Becky is the incoming president of the American Association of Political Consultants. And I'm so grateful Becky found time today for our conversation. Becky Donatelli, tell me about how you grew up. So I grew up in Orange County, California. And uh, at that point in time, it was everything everybody thought about Orange County, California. It was politically conservative. There were lots of orange trees. The sun shone every day. We had a pretty idyllic upbringing. Born into a family that loved to talk about politics and argue and, and get involved and I came by this vocation naturally. We were born into it, pushed into it, led into it, still haven't gotten away from it. Yeah, we'll talk a bit about the Orange County, California of of that time. Orange County has been actually uh, a battleground in the last uh, election or two, last yes. election cycle or two at some of the congressional levels. But for for decades and decades, it was emblematic of, of a certain brand of conservative republicanism, which, right. you know, is not... Uh, you know, somebody coming of age today might not understand that, but can you talk about uh, the historic importance of Orange County, California? So unlike Los Angeles, which was a mecca for people that wanted to get into the entertainment industry, Orange County really grew up big after World War II as uh, the home of the aerospace industry. So you had a lot of former military engineers, um, people that would tend to be more politically conservative, moved to Orange County and, and become the base population. There was a lot of ranching, a lot of farming, the growers that would tend to be, again, a little more of a conservative bent. And then there were things like Knott's Berry Farm, the world famous Knott's Berry Farm, which started out as a little roadside stand where Mrs. Knott sold her um, fried chicken and jars of canned boysenberries. And uh, they were very successful and very conservative. Uh, Walter Knott built a replica of Independence Hall from Philadelphia, which was the only time that a lot of kids ever in their whole lives got exposed to uh, Independence Hall. But he was, he was a big guy, a big footprint in Orange County, formidable, very philanthropic who made sure that there was a lot of Americanism information being given out. Then you have the Hollywood people, the Hollywood elites, everyone talks about John Wayne, but there were more, but John Wayne was again, the, the big guy. He was a well-known Republican and conservative activist and he lived in Newport beach for years, huge factor in the community. Everything came together to be a mainstream middle-class area. I would say white, but not because there were a lot of Asians in our community, lots of lots of Mexican kids in our community. So we grew up fairly diverse and uh, a great place to, to grow up. Yeah, and you mentioned you grew up in a, in a family where politics was front and center. What, what was your political, uh, what were these political roots you're talking about? So my grandfather had been uh, an elected official in North Dakota 
and he had risen to be, I believe he was president of the state Senate, Arthur Bonzer. But he left North Dakota in the depression with his family, two sets of, of grandparents, six kids, and they all moved to California. But the family loved to talk about politics. My grandfather died before I was born, but my grandmother would tell stories that every time FDR won another election, he'd say, mother, we're moving to Canada, pack up the kids. Of course, they didn't, they moved to California instead. But um, so, so it was a very large vocal family. My mom had five other siblings and they all had an opinion mostly to the right of center, but even with that, an opinion about everything and everybody. And we started volunteering on local campaigns when we were kids, 10, 11 years old and walking precincts and handing out leaflets. And my mom was an activist and she made sure that the kids did all the work. This is going to be fun to do these mailers. And, you know, it's kind of like Tom Sawyer. It was kind of fun to do 5,000 mailers and stamp them and stick them and this, that, and the other. So I guess we were good, free, cheap labor. When you're actually starting to pay attention, is there a, a campaign, whether it's a local local in Orange County or a national campaign or a figure of your own volition that, that caught your interest and was a uh, an important moment for you in your political development? So I just found this. I, I found some old scrapbooks from when we were kids. And apparently I was 10 or 11 years old and I ripped a picture of Barry Goldwater out of a magazine. And I sent it to his office with some sort of letter and he autographed it and sent it back to me. So the Goldwater girl. Getting interested at that point. But actually I got involved in an assembly race when I was probably 14. The, our candidate was young and, and gregarious and actually did some babysitting for his kids. And he was, he was full of energy. And so we kids banded together and we were the volunteer team and everybody we know we had going down to headquarters or again, doing mailers at our house. And he didn't win. He did. He went on to win some other offices later on after I, I had left for college. Those of us in the business get the joke about how being in politics is like being on a sports team. There is a beginning and an end. You win and you lose. It's high, it's low. Then the day after the election, you put it all away and start over again. And you wonder how elite athletes can do that because it has to end, it's over, it's gone, you can't relive it. And although we all do that to some degree because we're obsessive about it, the, the fun is really uh, starting again the next day on something new. You gotta be idealistic, I think. You know, there are people that get in this business because it can be very lucrative and, and there's a lot. But if you don't have that core sense of idealism that you're doing this for a cause, I don't know how you stay in it because it's too exhausting. Talk a little bit about how you go from that kid tearing out pictures of Barry Goldwater and working on local uh, local races to actually working in politics professionally. So, of course, being that kind of kid I was, I you know ran for school office and did things like that. And I'm, I'm kind of an overachiever in that regard. But I went up to USC and I really wanted to go a different path. And I wanted to major in international relations with the idea of going to work in the State Department. So politics, but on an international level. So I got close to my senior year and I realized, OK, this is 1974, 1975. I'm going to be a secretary in Ghana. I'm going to go to, to a small country somewhere halfway around the world, and I'm not going to get to be a foreign service officer right away, or even if I am, I'm still going to be one doing the typing and the filing and, and all of that. Things have changed so much in my lifetime. The girls today don't have 
any clue really what it was like. So anyway, I decided, okay, I'm going to take a year and I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. and see if I can work in politics for a year or maybe go to graduate school there rather than California. I'm so, I'm such a cliche. I got there and I just completely fell in love with the place. I loved the way it looked. I loved the energy. I loved the fact that everybody in the world had an embassy and people there. I was there about 24 hours and I said, well, I'm never going home. I ended up ended up just doing whatever he does. I'd start knocking on doors and calling on the few contacts that I had. Absolutely fell into the most amazing situation where I got to go to work for my governor, Ronald Reagan, when he ran the first time for president. He didn't win. He didn't get the nomination. And this would be the 76 campaign? Exactly. So December of 75, I went to work for Citizens for Reagan. It was about as thrilling as you could be. We didn't expect to win particularly. I mean, how do you unseat a sitting president and blah, blah, blah. But man, talk about an education. And, you know, there have been so many books written about that campaign and how close they came and brilliance of some of the people that took this silly little campaign and made it real. I was hooked. Well, talk about your role and what you were doing. I mean, as one of your first, you know, real jobs in politics, what 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 were you doing? What was your what was your role? And maybe some of the people that you uh, brushed up against, some of the names that we might know, uh, you know, as you mentioned, a part of the ragtag team that uh, put uh, Governor Reagan at the doorstep of of, of denying a sitting uh, president the Republican nomination. So I did what every twenty one year old recent college graduate did. I answered the phones. So I was the front line. I was the, the reception. I was a Californian, which helped him. So we do laugh about this because campaigns like sports, like like being in a show of some kind, you build an amazing camaraderie with the people around you because you work all day, you work all night, you work weekends, you work with each other, and you find and, and bond great friendships there. And one day when I was at the front desk, in walked uh, a man who said, uh, hi, I'm Frank Donatelli, and I'm here to see Roger Stone. And so I took him back to see Roger. Of course, I ended up marrying him. So You married Frank Donatelli, not Roger Stone, to be, to correct. be, to be clear. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. It's a magical time to do something like that. You just get an education. I mean, people like Charlie Black was a regional guy, David King, Jim Lake. I mean, men who went on to be extremely successful in their political careers. And uh, a lot of us kids just starting out. And many of them are, are still someplace in the political sphere today. But I actually did give it up for a while. After Frank and I got married um, in 1978, we went to work for Jim Baker, who was running for attorney general of Texas. Mr. Baker very kindly thanks my husband, ex-husband, for losing the race for him because he would have been attorney general in Texas instead of what he became, which is one of the great leaders that, that our country's had. So when we got back from Texas, we decided one of us needed to get a real job. And um, so I ended up taking a divergent path for a while, got a real estate license, opened a real estate company, started a de novo bank, which was like getting a, a master's degree and spent the next 16 years in business before I sold those companies and said, I hate this. But if I hadn't done that, we never would have invented e-donation. It seems unlikely, but the first political donation that was taken over the internet was did not happen until 1998. 
when Governor George Pataki received, I think, a $250 contribution. But if I hadn't been involved in a bank so deeply, I wouldn't have known really how to put it all together. I'd, uh, I'd gone to work uh, as a full-time volunteer for Bob Dole. One of the things that, that was just a problem was people kept writing in or calling in their credit card numbers. Okay, this is 1996, so it's not so long ago. And the accounting staff said they spent half of your time chasing numbers that were transposed. Somebody said, you know, if Amazon can sell books on the internet, we should be able to take a donation over the internet. So the the idea, it wasn't my idea, but the idea took hold. Um, and we actually wrote the first software that did that. But had I not taken that divergent path for a while and understood the banking and, and the financial side of how money moves and money works. I'm not sure I really would have been prepared to do that. So everything has a role and a reason. Well, you mentioned some very important folks there. I mean, which can you can you take us back? I guess that would be, as you said, 75, 76, Roger Stone, a almost a mythic figure in politics. Tell us about the Roger Stone you knew, the Roger Stone of 1975, 1976. So Roger and his wife, uh, Bitsy, were actually very good friends of ours. So much has been written about Roger that's simply not true and the persona and the this, that, and the other. At the core back then, he was one of the smartest young political operatives in town. Just has a first-rate mind, was on a path to do big things in the party. And of course he ran for a young Republican National Federation chairman and won. In fact, Paul Manafort was his campaign manager. I actually worked for the young Republicans at that point in my career too. And no one should underestimate Roger. He's a smart guy and a very caring person. Again, the media and what he's become later in life, we're not as close now. I don't see him particularly, but uh, he probably has been more generous to people than anyone you and I know. And he always did it quietly. He always had a family that he adopted or um, people who worked on his cars that fell on hard times. And he very quietly did a lot of really good stuff. That's the person I remember mostly. Well, let me ask you about Jim Baker as well. You mentioned being involved in his 1978 uh, race for attorney general in Texas race, one of the few races he was involved in that didn't uh, end with a, a victory. But Correct. what did you see about uh, Jim Baker at that point? He's uh, There's been a book written about Jim Baker um, in the last year or two that's a phenomenal book, arguably one of the most influential, important people of his generation. But t- talk a bit about what you saw of Jim Baker in those days before Reagan, before Bush, in the late 70s in Texas. So this was really my first exposure to the the South. And, you know, I know people don't really think of Texas as being Southern, but they are. And the person that I met was a very courtly gentleman. You know, he was fourth generation Houstonian. He was a lawyer. He was so smart. But beyond that, he was just great manners, great um, congeniality, cordiality. Probably he was too nice. For elective office, he did so much better as a chief of staff or a secretary or, you know, running the, the world, so to speak. Um, he was really great in small meetings because this likability came across and he wasn't going to screw you over. I mean, this was a man of real honor and integrity in his word. And I think that's why he succeeded so completely and totally in everything he did. I don't think he, um, I think that after that, he had his taste for elective politics. 
And I don't think that was anything he ever seriously entertained doing again. Uh, it was funny because his first wife had died of breast con cancer, leaving him with four boys. And he married a, a gal whose husband had passed away and she had three kids. And together they had a little baby, Mary Bonner. And he used to joke about having Mary Bonner so he had his own baby to kiss at rallies and things like that. He had lots of, he was funny. He was, he was really great, but um, we all were better off that he went on a completely different path because he was just so good at it. What were you doing from that early 80s to the you know, mid late 90s uh, when you're really putting your real stamp on Republican politics? So we're never out of it because remember my husband at the time went to work for the Reagan administration twice as a deputy assistant to the president for um, public liaison in the first administration, Reagan administration. And then he became the assistant to the president for political and intergovernmental affairs um, in the last couple of years of the Reagan administration. So we were always involved. And then he went on to form a consulting lobbying firm with Rich Bond afterwards. So that span of 80 to mid 90s, I'm doing a lot of politics, but I'm doing it in a different way. All during that time, I was a fundraiser. I have raised money for everybody and everything. I like it. I think it is an honorable, wonderful profession. Raising money for the children's theater. I sat on one of the boards of the Kennedy Center for three years. So it's and everything in between. Let me jump in there because that's very interesting. Obviously, you're best known these days fundraising through the digital space. But what you're talking about now is actually the real nuts and bolts of, of actually making the ask yourself. What, what do you tell folks is the best way to, to actually make that happen in, in terms of direct person-to-person -person fundraising. But at the bottom line, there's got to be passion. So you either have to be passionately for somebody or something, or you have to hate them with a passion. And it, it, it's the, the sad side of politics, but it's reality. You don't give money to something you don't feel strongly about. And it helps if the person that asks you for the contribution is somebody you feel strongly about. You gotta put that, that mold together. Uh, we are anti and we are for, and there's just no middle ground. If this is a good cause, and it's a very nice group of people, and your $25 contribution or your $5,000 contribution would be really nice, it's not going to happen. So the tip is it helps to believe in your cause yourself. And if you can't find somebody that can, um, but you have to create this emotional connection. And so our job is to try to find a way to present our candidate or our cause in the same light that creates an emotional connection with the donor. Also said this for a long time, there are doers and donors. So there are people that will do everything in the campaign. That was my mom. She would volunteer for everything. She would do the mailers, blah, blah, blah. But she wouldn't give you a dime. She was not a donor. She didn't have a donor's heart. She didn't have a donor's spirit. She was a doer. Most people out there are doers and not donors. So don't get caught up in all of the people that you ask for something and you don't get anything, even if they care passionately about the race, they're going to be your doers. You concentrate on the three to 9% of the people that actually will make a contribution. Hope the rest of them will be your voters. Can you tell us anything you observed about Governor Reagan, President Reagan? You know, we wouldn't know or we wouldn't if we wouldn't realize about him uh, unless we'd actually spent time in close proximity, like I'm sure you did. He was the nicest man you've ever met. I used to be 4'11". I'm not quite that tall anymore. So I'm teeny tiny. And the first time I met him, he's this great big man. He was a man of uh, sort of large stature, which I don't think necessarily comes across all that much in pictures, with the most startling blue eyes you have ever seen. 
and he had this innate ability to look straight at you and nobody else mattered. He connected with people over the screen, which we've seen a lot. And he was the actor in the set and the other, but he really connected on a personal level. People would tell stories and say, I'm going to tell the president this when I meet him. And I'm going to tell the president that when I meet him and he needs to hear from me, blah, blah, blah. But no matter who you brought into that room to meet him, they all were starstruck and everybody would just stand there. And so he would go into his mode and he would just tell stories. You know, he had so many jokes and so many stories and, and completely disarm everyone because he just had that, again, that ability, we were talking a little bit about Jim Baker, who had it, but that ability to reach people. I think that looking back, why his presidency was so successful, much more when you look back on what he, what he accomplished in foreign affairs and things like that, because he really did have that, that touch and the, the leaders of the world admired him. Would it have been the same if he had not been shot? I don't know, because that he was such grace under fire, under pressure. He came so close to death that day. And yet he walked himself into the hospital because he was the president. You know, it's been widely written. He never took off his jacket in the Oval. Uh, you know, he had a tremendous respect for the institution and the job he'd been given to do. And, and he was going to do it. Is there any misconception about President Reagan uh, that you, you know, that, that you'd like to clear off? So they, he was chided for being intellectually inferior, which is simply not true. But I think his life experience had taught him that you need to synthesize and make things smaller. And so he had a voracious appetite for reading anything and everything. And of course, his first, his first marriage basically broke up because his ex-wife said he was boring. He was just interested in talking about politics. He was well-read and a learned man and a man of letters and wrote letters for years to people. And, you know, some of them have been published in books. And I know the Reagan Library and the Reagan Ranch both have a lot of letters that he wrote to people over the years. He was very smart and he knew what he knew and he knew what he didn't know. But he had such a strong core philosophy of right and wrong, conservative not conservative, that even when he was confronted with new issues to learn about or to deal with, he basically fell back on what he had always known to be true. I think you can look at some of the problems in the, in the Trump administration, and he did not have that, those years of having to hone what it was he believed. And so he didn't necessarily have the philosophical underpinnings to fall back on, well, this is where we're going to go because that's the conservative way to go. So Reagan had that. You mentioned in the, the 96 campaign, you're, you're in a volunteer capacity working with Dole Kemp and, you know, in, in a conversation you had uh, maybe plants a little bit of a seed uh, in terms of a, a space, a vacuum and catch, catching up the political fundraising world with what's happening in the private sector. But, you know, can you talk about, you know, how you make the decision uh, in the late 90s to go from this volunteer capacity and at very high, high levels? Can you talk about the decision that you made to, to actually start your own business at that point? So I sold my real estate company. I sold the bank. And I retired and I was young. I was 43, 44, then went to work full, as a full-time volunteer for Dole and kind of got the juices going again and thinking, I really miss this. Started talking to a friend of mine, Tom Hockaday, who had had a, a long career in the uh, voter contact side of the business. And I said, you know what? We should just start a company. I, I, I'll just help get clients. And 
you know, you do everything. So we decide we take a flyer to do this. He does all the traditional voter contact, the, the phones, the, the mail, this, that, and the other. And I'd gotten kind of interested in online stuff. The 96 presidential campaign was the first time there was a website that either campaign had had a website. And it just fascinated me a little bit. So I said, you know what, I'm going to get more involved in that side of it. And we did. And uh, lo and behold, who knew that that was going to be the, the part that takes off? We take this flyer on the donation software. And at the time, nobody's taking any money online. There was a high level of uh, skepticism amongst traditional fundraisers that, of course, this was ever going to take off at all. But anyway, we persevered and we got it up and going in 1998. We signed up eight clients. We had eight people that were willing to try to do this. And one of them was John McCain. His finance director, a gal named Carla Udi, took a flyer and she said, well, yes, let's try it. I, you know, I think he got about 20 donations the whole Senate cycle in 98, but that's okay. It's a start. We decide to join the McCain 2000 campaign, even though we had talked to another couple of campaigns because I, I just really liked him, but he wasn't, he was like in fourth or fifth place. Steve Forbes and Elizabeth Dole were the hot campaigns. We decided we want to do John McCain. So um, again, not much to go on, but he starts the Straight Talk Express in New Hampshire and the press falls in love with him and New Hampshire's always been his state. The people that live here, there have always responded to his message and to him and the kind of person that he is. Out of the blue, he wins the New Hampshire primary. He beats George Bush. The internet responds from all over the country. And uh, John used to say, well, I raised a million dollars overnight. Well, he didn't, but it took seven days, six days, seven days to raise a million dollars overnight. Our servers, we were unprepared for the onslaught because this had never happened before. I had, there was a fellow named Chris Zeller who went into our server room and slept there every night. And so he could restart the computer, the servers at three in the morning because the amount of money coming in was unparalleled. So we did end up raising enough money to fund the rest of the campaign. Overnight sensation and the stories and people were like, okay, there may be something here after all. Was the campaign, were you as, as part of the campaign doing anything tactically to make sure you're leveraging uh, this uh, success? And, and, and part of it, as you mentioned, is certainly McCain you know, wins New Hampshire and gets ahead of steam. And so is it as simple as people just finding him on the website and giving him money? Or were there actual decisions, tactical decisions made to uh, try to leverage uh, what was happening uh, in the political climate for McCain? That's a great question. Yes. We um, sent out the first emails asking for direct contributions, and that had not been done before. Max Fost and I, we sort of, we were going by the skin of our, our pants and, and how do we do this? And so we tried to get the rhythm of how often could you ask people without turning them off or making them unsubscribe for your list and those sorts of things. We also were able to prove to the senator that every time he went on TV, and mentioned the website, our donations went like this, skyrocketed, because he didn't like to talk about it. I felt very unfamiliar to say, please go to johnmccain.com. So he didn't like to do that. But when we were able to show him the heavy spike in traffic and in contributions, then he he got the joke, okay, maybe I should do this. Was the, the hurdles that you were facing 
Uh, was it more technical and, you know, how do we make this, how do we write the software and how do we have the server space to do it? Or was it more, was the hurdle more the culture of fundraising and some of the maybe discomfort that traditional fundraisers would have, which, which was more of a difficult nut to crack? All of the above. So we had a finance director in Carla Udi who actually believed in what we were doing. And, but major donor fundraisers raise big pots of money at one time. We raise little pots of money every single day. And so for a long time, there was this war, like, like you had to have either or, or and th- that doesn't exist anymore. The, the alliance between everybody that fund, fund raises now, as we know that it all succeeds, uh, sometimes this is hotter than the other. But at that time, we did have to battle with some of our major donor friends who would say, that contribution didn't come from the email. It came from me. I'd been calling them. Well, actually, it came from the opportunity to give, which was the big concept that we had to get over. The online space offers opportunity and ease of a gift. Yeah, you may have called them, but if you can't get the check or if you can't get them in the door um, to actually give, then what good is it? If we can provide an ability and an opportunity to make life easier for somebody to part with their money, you know, that's the name of the game. We all get along a whole lot better now than we did then, but we didn't know anything. You're right. On the technical side of it, sending out email. Well, how do we send out email to thousands of people, to millions of people? Uh, how's the database? Is it a relational database? How do we find people who have given before? So we had a lot of that that we did and just hit and miss. Got better in 2002. And then Chuck DeFeo, who did the Bush campaign in 04 as their in-house digital guy, was really um, a pioneer on the metric side of digital I think of that, you know, the Howard Dean campaign in 2004 being a trailblazer, and I'm sure they were in, in a lot of ways. But as you as you talk about it, the McCain well, campaign. And into, hmm? Nick O'Malley was a McCain guy. So Nick, who ran the whole, whole Howard Dean, basically came out of our operation for McCain in 2000. Yeah, well, and, and you talk about Senator McCain and you, we've talked about the 2000 race, but you're also deeply embedded in his 2008 campaign. Right. Talk a little bit about the John McCain that you know that maybe we wouldn't see on television or we don't know uh, from his public persona. Uh, he was funny. He was really funny. He had a great sense of humor and he loved to tease. And you knew that you were uh, you were uh, honored and revered if he called you terrible names, <laughs> made fun of your parentage or or something. He just, he's just fun. In the 08 cycle, we got a lot more of the POWs involved and his friends that were Vietnam vets. And they would tell stories about each other. I remember saying to Orson Swindle, you guys make the POW experience feel like summer camp. And they said, well, when you weren't being tortured, it was a lot like summer camp. And they would tell the stories of of their Monday night at the movies when every guy would stand up and act out a, a show and, and John was the favorite and they was it the guns of Navarone I, they they would just say okay it's Monday night time for John to act out the guns of Navarone and he'd do it over and over again because he, he was funny I'm not quite sure how to say this but men felt comfortable with him you know men who have uh, leadership skills especially who have been in the military you can see a camaraderie he was a guy's guy but women really liked him and he liked, he liked women. He just was a scamp, um, you know, the, the stories. And, and yet here's a man who thinks deeply and passionately. 
and cares so much, driven to change the world. And of course, his upbringing is such that, I mean, it was never expected that he would do anything but go to the Naval Academy. And I don't think he particularly wanted to, and he wasn't a great student, but, you know, somewhere along the line, it all took. And he was absolutely driven to do good for the world. And that was, again, I get back to that passion thing. You know, you know this. If you can have a passion for your client, you're willing to do just about anything it takes to further the goals. And he had that uncanny ability to inspire people, not even talking about his own life. He was very reluctant to talk about himself in any way that would showcase him as being special or having done something special. He just didn't do that. You know, if you're in a room for president, everything's on the table. And I do remember the digital team got custody of the notebooks, his psychological evaluations. So all along the line, the line after being a POW, I guess these guys get evaluated over and over and over again, and they're looking for latent PTSD. Or, and he just was as normal as blueberry pie. You know, for somebody who had been through what he w- went through, he was just so normal. He didn't like being touched because of the, the arms and the broken arms and, and, and all of that. But that, that's probably the only thing that if you got in a little too close or whatever, but just remarkably normal for what he'd been through. And, and you were involved with him in 2000, 2008. He runs you know, very, uh, exceeds expectations in a lot of ways, does not become president, but exceeds expectations uh, in, in terms of what uh, was expected of him in, in, in both of those campaigns, I would I would suggest. But is there a, a, a moment that you think of, you know, with Senator McCain in either of those campaigns that stands out, a high point in, in one of those campaigns that you think of as, as maybe the first thing that comes to mind, you know, one, one of your proudest professional moments uh, when you were wearing your, your McCain hat? So South Carolina, 2008, that primary was probably the most fun uh, because the campaign. So our digital team and the lawyers were the only people that went to work on the campaign in in November of 2006 when we launched the very first website to the end because everybody else got fired at some point or they quit or the whatnot or whatever. So we literally had been at it. We were exhausted. We, We were exhausted. It had been two years of absolutely no sleep and, and just the emotional highs and lows. And people forget now, it's very tough on him. The campaign imploded. The John Weaver guys had, and the crew that had come in, had fired a lot of the people that were loyal to him. And then the campaign really went off track. Well, yeah, I mean, it, that, that, that's right. I mean, exactly. I mean, McCain starts off in 2008 as the front runner in a lot yes. of ways in a conventional sense. But then, uh, as you say, sort of the campaign hits the skids and he's almost an afterthought uh, for a big stretch of that ca- campaign before uh, riding the ship. Yeah, we, we forget this is all inside baseball to us. And it's as if I'm living it all over again when you talk about it. But but I don't think most people know. I mean, at one point, everybody walked out on him, digital and legal and a couple of other people. And Brian Jones had been the communications director. And I say, God bless him to this day. He was going to leave the campaign because he was part of the group that left. But uh, he also is a man of honor and said, I'm not leaving him in the lurch. And he traveled with him on Southwest up to Manchester. It was just Brian and and the senator carrying their own bags and duck with him uh, and took care of things until a small skeleton staff could be hired or promoted amongst what was left behind. John McCain never gave up. He didn't waver. 
he was going to see this through. And I mean, he carried us all on his back. So it was all the more fun to go spend two weeks in Charleston, South Carolina, to practically my whole company. And we got houses down there to live in and the Senate staff all took vacation. And because that was the one where our comeback had, had begun, but that was where we needed to win to prove to everybody he was going to be the nominee. And South Carolina place in 2000, which was sort of infamous for, um, of course. for, for um, some, some tactics used against Senator McCain that, that do not wear well over time. No, and that's another story that, that you forget that people don't ever talk about anymore. And, and, um, and the fallout, the human fallout, his, years later, they would never allow their daughter to um, have unlimited access to a computer until she was old enough and she did and she Googled herself and uh, came up with the terrible stories of what happened in South Carolina, wanted to know if she had caused her father the election. You know, just, just terrible, terrible stuff that hopefully nobody has to endure again. But at any rate, yeah. It, so it, to, makes, it makes the 2008 South Carolina win that much more. Oh, uh, absolutely. Meaningful. Absolutely. Uh, leave it to a pollster to remember exactly the right points that go in, in a row. Um, yeah, so that was really fun. Uh, election night 2008, we were all out at um, the Biltmore. So I, I was standing, it was after dark, and he was getting ready to move his way across the hotel to go to the stage. He has his head down he's, and he's walking over. And so we were, of course, cheering him on. He stopped the group and he turned back to me and he said, thank you, Becky, for everything. And I just said, I love you. You know, it's just one of those moments that when I think about him, that's what I think. He just, anyway, I'm lucky. I'm really lucky. I've had two of these guys in my professional career that are giants that I can be proud to have been associated with. You also do a lot of work for PACs and other institutions. What is different about fundraising for PACs? What is different about being effective uh, working for a PAC or an institution or a committee versus a, a candidate? I prefer candidates, to be perfectly honest, because that's how I connect. It's a much more personal connection. But there is an important role for super PACs and for PACs. And, and to be able to go into a race, maybe with less emotion and decide who's, who is truly most electable or where can money make a difference here uh, that it couldn't someplace else. And you get to do some things with PACs that you don't do with candidates and that's try stuff out, use new metrics and new ways of doing things. We uh, did a super PAC in 2014 uh, and 2016 using um, data that was later disregarded, the whole Cambridge Analytica thing, Um, but nobody knew it at the time, but we used data that was sentiment-based modeling for the first time and targeted our voters specifically with messages based on who and what they were and moved the needle. We um, played in three races, Arkansas, North Carolina, and New Hampshire. And in Arkansas and in Arkansas, in the control groups, we lifted like, I think a 7% turnout rate. In North Carolina, it was three and a half percent. We took credit for that election. New Hampshire was, is, as a pollster, you know, it's a little hard to measure anything in New Hampshire with any degree of specificity. But you can't do that in a campaign. 
you can only do that either out of a committee or out of a pack. And and frankly, I think the packs are more fun to work with than the committees necessarily, because the committees are party structures. You know, we've done it all. We did the RNC's stuff for years and years and years. It's, it's just different. They don't have uh, maybe the freedom necessarily to be as inventive. And the whole key to what we do is to constantly reinvent and stay up with the technology and the way people are receiving message. And, and sometimes the PAC is just an easier way to do it. And, and a lot of what we've talked about has been the digital fundraising space, but you and your, your firm are very active in actual communications and, and, and moving voters. Uh, can you t- what, what do you tell folks or your clients or what are your best practices about how messaging in terms of digital purposes is different, should be different, should be, should be viewed differently than traditional television 30-second uh, commercials that we are all used to? So thanks for setting that up, because actually our our sister company, CDI Ads, has been one of the biggest ad players on the Republican side since our inception. You do two things. You're either persuading somebody to vote for your candidate or you're persuading somebody to give a gift of either time or money to your candidate. That's what I see as our real role. Of course, we think that we're far more efficient with our donor's dollar in turning out a voter than any other medium. We have the ability to target in a way that is just incredibly deep. So we know who we're talking to. We do a lot of list brokerage. Our Right Country List sister company manages and and monitors 100 of the biggest conservative lists in the country. We have an incoming of data at all times that you have to parse out and figure out what does this mean? What are the trend lines? So while we're not a traditional comms shop, we do that every single day in the, the creative for the advertising. So let me just talk about this last election a little bit it, because it was kind of fun. It was COVID. It was different. Who knew that everything would be upside down? But it was an era this year of uh, YouTube. So every cycle, something jumps out as being the big thing of that cycle. So YouTube came into its own, both as a fund wa- fundraising vehicle and a persuasion vehicle. People have now adopted video. It's ubiquitous. We talked to a lot, of more, a lot more people that way. And it was very interesting. The more authentic, the more unproduced, frankly, the crappier the video and the ad, the more success we had because it was real. It's COVID. You can't get a bunch of producers and, and TV crews out there shooting everything, relying on our iPhones and a staffer or the member himself to just take his own video when we pop that up. I mean, we did Lindsey Graham's campaign, which of course was craziness because of all the money that was coming in from the left. He would just stand up. I'm having lunch at Chick-fil-A today. Take a video of himself. I'm, I'm having lunch at Chick-fil-A today. Sure would like it if you could maybe help me with a $10 contribution. Every little bit helps. Pure Lindsey Graham. That was really him. And that resonated with the voters this cycle in a huge way. Is there a Democratic campaign or operation that you've seen over the last few years that did something creative or different that impressed you uh, in, in what they've done in the online space? Is there anything that stands out? So we got to go back to Obama because that was a turning point. That that cycle was a turning point. And uh, just everything they did was right. You have to remember that in the McCain campaign, 2008, same year, we're not allowed to use Facebook because one of the founders of Facebook was a full-time Obama staffer. So it's, you're talking about 10, 12 years ago, these things um, just didn't exist. So, so they changed the whole trajectory. 
they keep at it after the election. They, um, they didn't give their list over to the DNC and said, now go have fun and, and we'll see you in four more years. They kept people in the field. They kept it up online. And so I think that we all learned a lot from them and they changed modern politicking. So what we're going to see now on the Republican side, nobody really knows because the, the Trump folks aren't like anybody else and they haven't been like anybody else. And that's why he was elected. Um, and what they're going to do with their file is not what other presidential campaigns have done. He is in the fray still. So I don't know where that's going to end up. We mentioned McCain and and, and Bush re-election, and we, you mentioned some others and some of the big committees. Is there another candidate aside from somebody who ran for president that you found yourself more emotionally involved in, you know, something recent or or, or oh. whenever, you know, what what is one or two that, that that stands out to you among the numerous that you've been involved in? Done. Easy. Lindsey Graham. So we got to work for him when he was a member of Congress and then all of his Senate races. And uh, for those of us on the right, he's a folk hero. He is, again, in that mold of uh, this is a guy who tells the truth and who is an honorable man. And there were some people that weren't necessarily as happy with him about his relationship with the president. But on the other hand, um, he was able to give really good advice because he was in a position to offer truth. Again, rags to riches. I love these stories. I love people who have been given nothing and, and have risen in the world. And he's unafraid to tell the truth. Um, and it just so happened that we were able to do a, we think, magnificent job for him in this campaign. And he made it easy in a lot of ways. But uh, yeah, that was fun. And, and that was... We never really thought he would lose, but it was getting kind of crazy. The money that Jamie Harrison was raising. If you have so much money in your campaign that you can afford to hire skywriters, you know, it was like, where, where else can they spend their money? A luxury item for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I told my, my Democrat friends in California, I said, stop giving. <laughs> They're like, oh, I'm giving to this. I'm giving that. I said, stop. They don't and, need it. Trust me. I, is there anything else you'd, you'd add about the, the, the digital landscape here in 2021, about how you're thinking about it, how your firm is thinking through the field today? Any, anything additional you wanted to add? So there has been a bad practice established by our, uh, by our industry and by our candidates. They want instant gratification. We used to build email lists one by one by one, and they were for that candidate and they were for that campaign you often didn't have the luxury of the time it took to wait around and build a list so that it was effective for you in the last two months of the campaign. So other industries started of which we're a part of that, okay, somebody who wasn't a campaign would have a list. You would rent it or revenue share fundraise off it or use it to build their list. There's a cost to that. And it's all beginning to kind of come out, you know, just, just, how expensive it is to build email files and things like that. Parties don't share as much as they could or should. And so then the candidate is stuck. The end goes, well, I got to have a list and I don't have any money. So how do I do this? And so in their need to be um, instant, you know, it's created, it's created um, a synergy that there's a lot of, um, it's a lot of vendors involved in this process and list owners and things like that. And I think that we need to always be respectful of our donors. Where are they giving and, and who are they giving money to and trying to get as much of donor donation into the campaign's pockets as possible. 
So to do that, we may have to sacrifice a little bit in terms of time and speed and, and campaigns might have to be a little more interested in um, making sure that they harvest email addresses at every event they go to or everyone they talk to pick up a business card. Thing, things that just aren't sexy and easy and fast, but it's a, a good way to, to build a more solid list. One of your earlier political memories was, was tearing out a picture of, of Barry Goldwater. Found yourself uh, here with a founder and CEO of a, of a big digital firm where technology is moving and innovation is really name of the game. How do you personally stay on top of this? What are your practical tips on how you're keeping up with changes in the industry and how you're, you're being cutting edge on a part of the industry that uh, demands that? Part of it is luck. You know, Zach, we're lucky. You know, things have happened in our lives that being in the right place at the right time. And then just taking advantage of that luck and opportunity. Don't be afraid to fail. Oh my gosh, we failed it so much. In fact, we that's part of our pitch. We've already done this wrong. So we know we've been in business so long. We now know how to do it exactly right. But, um, you know, I tend to hire young people that are interesting. And so, and we train them up in what we do and, and all of that. But, um you have to keep a certain amount of, of the youth involved in when you're in digital because we we're not we're not digital natives. The way that technology is being used today is so different than it was five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. So you just have to be open to the change. There are some things I don't do anymore. There's some technology's gotten beyond me, and so there's some things that I don't do. But it's important to have an understanding of it and be willing to take chances on things. There's so much great software out there. It is really hard to pick through. You know, you've been to APC events. There are a lot of good people that come with amazing products. Most of them don't make it in the industry necessarily because everything moves so fast or they don't have, you have to be willing to um, to hang on and get to know the rhythm of politics. Um, you know, if you're not moving a voter, then it doesn't matter how fancy it is on the great graphs you can print out or this, that, and the other. If it's not doing the job of persuading a voter, it's not doing its job. Part of staying uh, abreast of the industry is is who you're hiring, who you're bringing on. Uh, you started this firm, as you talk about, with you and one other person in the late 90s. Now it has just from your website, a couple dozen uh, uh, that might be on the low end of, of folks. Uh, 34. Who work, 34 now uh, who work there now. So you've hired dozens and dozens and dozens of people over the years. I'm sure when you're hiring, you're getting resumes. A lot of them look good. A lot of them are pretty similar. But what are the consistent traits you're looking for when you're hiring? How does someone stand out in that process for you? Okay, I'm joking when I say this, but I'm making my point. If in the interview they ask me about the quality of life issues, I say you're in the wrong business. You know, we don't have a quality of life in our business. We are driven by our need to elect people to office. We are driven by our need to change the world. So you look for that kind of person and they're not all like that. And they think they are. And then some of them after a cycle go, oh my God, get me out of here. I never want to do this again. But there are some of us sickos that go, this is the best thing I've ever done. Let's do it again. And so enthusiasm goes a big way with me. We can teach somebody anything. Uh, you can't teach good political smart. You know, they kind of come with that. People who are, are strategic thinkers, they, they already come to you that way. It's just channeling the, the way they, um, they're they bent anyway. And, and, I, how are, and how are you trying to get at that in, in the interview process? Is there is there a, an exercise or a technique or a question that oh you God. have that maybe susses that out? 
a place that the people who work for me here, this, my senior executives are going to roll their eyes because in all the tests that you take, I am high feeler. I am feeler off the charts. I have no thinker. I have no analyst. I am all really in the feeler sector. So a lot of the way I hire based on the interview process itself and how I feel about them, or maybe even the resume. So I hired one gal almost sight unseen. On her resume, she said that she'd spent the year after college as a traveling secretary for her sorority. Now, somebody who wasn't a sorority girl would never know what that meant. But I knew that this was a gal who lived out of her suitcase for a year, going into a bunch of different campuses, 40, 50 in in that year, and telling people what they're doing wrong and what they're doing right and helping them. That's an independent thinker, somebody who's used to thinking on her feet and and doesn't need a lot of direction. I'm also not big on a lot of direction. So I was like, get me this girl. I want to interview her. Things, Things like that. It's the little resumes. I get a lot of them. Put something really interesting on it. Don't be afraid to say, I like to pick apples in the fall. You know, whatever it is. A lot of it for me is how are we connecting and how do I feel about you and am I noting that passion. We're obviously here during COVID times, but in normal times, I'm sure you travel a lot, have traveled a lot over the years. Do you have any travel tips, travel hacks about how to make the road less of a grind? A lot of my life in the last five years has been between DC and California because I I remarried and he lives in California. So if I want to be with my husband, I need to be in California. But my company is headquartered in DC and so back and forth. So I was able to keep two sets of everything. When I bought a pair of shoes, I bought two pairs, this, that, and the other. But truly, the best travel hack is I have a bag, and it's kind of like your DOP kits. Um, And in that little bag is everything I need to exist. If I got stuck somewhere for 48 hours and I had my bag, I'm and it's it's packed all the time. I don't ever unpack it. And so it just literally comes with me when I go, and I don't have to think twice about it. That and I try to check myself into hotel chains that have nice pillows so I don't have to drag one with me. But you know what I'm talking about. Some of them are just so bad. And then some of them, I've discovered the Fairfield Inns. And who knew? But they have great pillows. Is there any other advice, insight you would offer to those you know, young people looking to get into politics or people early in their career? Any other advice or insight you would offer that maybe we haven't touched on yet? Offer to do everything. Enthusiasm is contagious. Uh, offer to learn something. Do grunt work. We have a, when she hears this, she's going to laugh. But we have a gal who works for us who's unbelievable. Just, you know, turning out to be a great addition to our team. The first day I met her, she was ke- cleaning out the refrigerator in our California office because her big sister was using the office. And so that was my introduction. She said I was dirty, so I thought I'd clean it out for you. She obviously is pretty damn good at everything digital, but it was just the idea that somebody would do something like that. It's these little things get noticed. Uh, Offer up ideas. Uh, I, I think I have a pretty open door and people pitch me internally on ideas and, and I love to hear that. Go to networking events. Okay, back to my unhired hat on. Get to know people. Join AAPC. Hit every opportunity that's given to you. And a lot of it's online now and you do it online. Just get in front of people and get to know them and be curious. Don't lay back. Be curious what's what's new. And not everybody thinks about that, but ask questions. 
People love to tell you why they love what they do. Well, one of the last questions, and this is a question I borrowed from The Economist, Tyler Cowen, and to, to paraphrase him, he might ask about the Becky Donatelli production function, meaning there's a lot of people who are smart out there, a lot of people who work hard, but what's unique about you, Becky? What's different about you that you've been able to be successful uh, in this field? So I'm a midget. I mean, at 410 and a half, honest to God, it does... <laughs> does change your personality a little bit. You gotta, you gotta kind of, I'm here, I'm here. See me. Come on. Listen. Um, I love being short. You know, it's a good thing because I am, and I can't do anything about it. I'm cursed with positivity being one of my number one strengths. It's who I am. I don't, I, I don't exist in a negative environment very well. Being the midget part is probably more formative than anything. Well, talk, talk talk a bit more about that, about what that what you think your your height or, or lack of height uh, has uh, made you uh, you know have to you know, has changed maybe how you've you know had to approach your professional career or has informed your personality in a way that is that made you uh, effective in this business. So I can't stand behind a podium. I don't know if you've ever seen me in a professional setting, a professional meeting. I always have to stand to the side. Um, because they're over my head. I happened to be at the White House the day the Queen of England came to um, the United States and they did an arrival ceremony. It was the Bush one administration. And literally, I'm sort of there on the front line and I look over and you did only see the top of her hat. You saw a purple hat because she was standing beside the, behind the podium and nobody thought to adjust or put a riser there. You just got to go with the flow. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the positive side of it is you just learn to be a little more. Yeah, so I can't reach that. So I have to ask for help. Well, let's end on a recommendation here, Becky. And this doesn't have to be brain food. It can be comfort food. But what is something, a book, a television show, a movie, a product, a recipe, something you've gotten into recently that you'd recommend people give a try? I never drink cheap wine. Better to have none than to have bad wine. Well, give us a couple of wine recommendations then. What, what is what is one or two we should be looking out for? So that's the other part. Get that get that app where you can take a picture of the, of the label because, oh my gosh, you have a great wine. And then afterwards, you had a great wine. What was it? <laughs> um, personally, we're getting into Italian wines at the moment. And so we went to... What do they have in California? Is it Total Beverage, Total Wine? One of those. I get them them mixed up, which is DC and which is, and literally just put together a case of wine we'd never had, uh, just had to be Italian, and uh, went through our own period of time tasting it and and putting aside the ones we liked. I had a kid who worked for me, nice kid, and he confessed to me, said, Becky, my wife and I put ice in our red wine. He was so embarrassed and ashamed to admit this to me. And I laughed and said, that's okay. It's however you like it. You know, so that's kind of my new philosophy. It's however you like it. Well, Becky, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you giving me so much time. Zach, it's been fun for me too. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.